This is the BAM School Podcast, where we talk about business adventure and mission with your host, Buddy Rathmel. All right, I'm here with my guest on the BAM School Podcast, Dr. Ray Wheeler. He is an engaging and humorous speaker, author, visionary, and transformative coach and mentor. Experienced in private and nonprofit op- operations, leadership development, and organization- organizational development, Ray synthesizes faith, theory, research, experience, and situational realities. The result is innovation, increased performance, and personal development breakthroughs in leadership and spiritual formation. Ray has been a college professor, a pastor, a business owner, a leader, um, has been on many boards and is currently on the board of his local hospital district and uh, serves um, in boards in Africa and different places around the world. Uh, He's the author of two books, Change the Paradigm, How to Lead Like Jesus in Today's World, and lift five practices great managers do consistently and it talks about how you can raise performance and morale and see your employees thrive Uh, personally i've been impacted by ray Uh, he was my leadership coach for 10 years even a little bit into his retirement and um, has helped me to be a better leader a better father a better husband a better son um, and hopefully teammate and uh all of those kind of things as well. He, um, one of the first questions I remember that really impacted me, uh, I was gonna let somebody slide out the door that I had urged on to greener pastures. And Ray just asked me, oh, is that the kind of man you wanna be? And, uh, and I thought, <laughs> no, um, not really, but it was gonna be convenient. Uh, but thankfully, because of Ray's uh, coaching, I leaned back into that relationship and um, we've, I've connected a number of times with that person over the years, and he's actually been a uh, guest on this very podcast, um, largely thanks to Ray's influence in my life. Um, I followed in his footsteps of being trained as a coach and a Berkman consultant because Ray's skills in those areas were so impactful in my own life. So it's with great pleasure that I um, am happy to welcome Dr. Ray Wheeler to the podcast. Thanks for being with us, Ray. Thanks, buddy. Uh, you know, after that introduction, I sound like someone I'd like to get to know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, we're, we're, uh, we do want to honor you for um, the life that you lived and the influence that you have. And it truly is a um, privilege to have you on. I'm, I'm just excited about the conversation and really am grateful for your impact in my life over the years. So happy to, to have you. So to start us off, do you have um, a favorite leadership quote? Oh, yeah. You know, leadership quotes. <laughs> uh, there's two that come to mind, right? So uh, one of them is by Balsinger, who wrote uh, Canoeing the Mountains. And uh, Balsinger, that make sure I don't mess it up here, you haven't succeeded until you face sabotage. Hmm. And so uh, his whole book deals with the subject of adaptive change and things that organizations are going through right now. And certainly we talk about adaptive change in the context of COVID, we're really uh, talking adaptation. Uh, Who knows what the problems really are? I mean, having to define the problem and the solution. So Balsinger just, I think he hits the nail on the head of what every leader experiences in that quote. And then my other favorite quote is by Northhouse, 
And his quote is, leadership is a process whereby an individual influences a group of people toward a certain purpose. And uh, I love Northhouse's definition because influence really is what leadership is about. We like to think it's power, position. It's neither power nor position. It really is the ability to tap into what people have as their internal sense of purpose and motivation and bringing that alongside whatever it is the group needs to accomplish. Uh, individuals who do that are really, really dynamic leaders. Yeah. So um, I just thought of this as you were talking. Do you, do you have a favorite quote of your own that, that uh, you like to pull out <laughs> when you are speaking or sharing? Um, uh, yeah. Uh, I think if there's a favorite quote of my own, uh, I, just, I go back to what Jesus said to James and John. If you want to be great, you learn to be a servant. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that if you're a leader and you're not serving, you're not a leader in anything other than name. Yeah. And so what does it look like to serve the people that not only are on your team, but your customers or clients, your stakeholders, your stockholders, uh, if you're in a traded company? Uh, it, without that orientation, you really, you're, not a, you're, not, uh, you're not leading it reminds me of a story I heard once of somebody doing uh, leadership or cultural studies in the Middle East. Uh, they'd heard that shepherds always lead their sheep. Uh, and so they, he was with his guide, came around a corner. There was a shepherd driving his sheep, which you don't drive sheep. And so he said, what's this? I thought you told me shepherds always lead their sheep. He goes, I don't know. Let's get out and check. So they got the guy's attention. They said, excuse me, excuse me, but you know, I was told shepherds always lead their sheep, but, but you're driving them. Why, why the difference? And the man just was horribly offended. He said, shepherd, shepherd, I am not the shepherd. I am the butcher. <laughs> he, was, he just bought them. These sheep were going to slaughter. And I thought, what a powerful, powerful illustration of the two different kinds of leadership. Yeah. Uh, one that leads people into really the development of their capacity and the business capacity, and the other one that uses people and discards them when they're no longer profitable for the business. Two entirely different ways of seeing what, what the act of leading looks like. Yeah, that's a powerful illustration for sure. In your own life, what was it that led you to the realization of the importance of leadership? And, you know, how, how is that? Um, come about in your own life? It was, it was really hanging out with, uh, surrounded by leaders. My uh, initial conscious upbringing, we lived in Southern California. Uh, we attended uh, a Lutheran church in Costa Mesa that was filled with all kinds of professionals, engineers, scientists, physicians, laborers. Uh, and so watching watching my pastor lead, watching the principal of the school lead, uh, watching my dad struggle with leadership, uh, watching other leaders and watching those interactions, it just gave me a sense of the importance of yeah. what this person or people do and the impact they have on groups. Yeah. Uh, I was also in scouting at the time, and uh, you know, people kept picking me out as a leader, so sending me off to training and leadership training. And so in that training, initially through Boy Scouts of America, 
seeing the significance of leadership and the skills that go with leadership, um, that hasn't changed all the way through my career. Uh, the impact of good leaders versus bad leaders on a group of people or, or organizations. So you know, initially it was being surrounded by men and women who were good leaders and watching how they influenced people and never used their position uh, unless it was something that was life or death. It yeah. very rare, rarely appealed to power, always appealed to influence. Yeah. And some powerful things happen as a result. Yeah, that's great. What are, um, what's an example of uh, a bad leader that you've seen that has, um, yeah, that has had bad consequences for the team or the organization? Oh, I, there's a litany of bad leaders in my experience. Um, the, I think one of the chief characteristics of a bad leader is when you listen to them talk, it's all about them. Yeah. Uh, it's how you're relating to their authority. Are you loyal? Uh, I am automatically suspicious of anybody who demands loyalty. Hmm. Uh, if you're demanding loyalty, you need to stop and think about your leadership for a moment. Yeah. Uh, because if you're, if you're really a good leader, you're going to earn the loyalty of your followers. But uh, that self-absorption, the idea, uh, in one organization I work with, their concept of leadership uh, boiled down to this, we're the benevolent dictators. Uh, there's neither uh, leadership nor benevolence in that kind of setting. It's just all about the agenda of the leader. And so... Uh, those kind of leaders who their agenda, their vision is the whole driver and they demand that people bend to that uh, are the kind of leaders who will end up using people and creating a highly toxic environment, yeah. uh, which then is self-defeating for the leader, right? They gather around themselves people who are just simply clackers. Yeah. Uh, they tell the leader what they want to hear. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen just horrendous leaders. Uh, working with a team once, I led a sales, inside sales team for a while. And they'd had a good month, so I was taking them to lunch. And we talked a lot about leadership and management, what that looked like. And this team, this team was, had begun to understand what I was saying and really thriving under uh, those concepts of leadership I was presenting. We walked into the restaurant it happened, this restaurant was in an industrial area, so there were always business people in this place. And we passed a table as we walked by as a group, group of managers from some company around us who were complaining about their employees, how they had crappy employees, their employees were just bleep. Uh, you know, they had nothing good to say. And I was, I was kind of taken aback by that as we walked by, but we walked out on the patio, sat down, my team said, we are so thankful that we don't work for those guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, McGregor pointed out a long time ago in the Theory X, Theory Y that he wrote about, you know, it's what you assume about the people you work with yeah. uh, is going to make you a good or bad leader. If you assume people are unmotivated jerks that have to be micromanaged, you're going to be a tyrant, yeah. not a leader. Yeah. Uh, if you assume people want to offer their best and they're looking for a purpose, now you have the potential of being a leader. Yeah. 
I, that's actually how I found you 13 years ago when I um, was Googling like Pygmalion effect, Christian leaders, uh, yes. you know, how, and I think my first email question to you was something along the lines of if, you know, the best way to get the most out of your people is believe in them. How do you do that when you struggle to believe in that, you know, or something along that, that line and you, um, yeah, and that's what started our, um, coaching. And now I realize, yeah, just how important it is believing in people, trusting in them. And now I feel like a lot of times I actually believe in the person more than they believe in themselves. Cause I know I've seen other people make the leap, make the change, do the thing, whatever it is. And I know that it's, it's possible for them as well. Uh, often before they're able to see that, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's important, uh, people that are introduced to this concept. Uh, McGregor is a good guy to read as a original source, his whole book. Uh, what you see quoted, uh, Theory X, Theory Y, and HR books, I know because I've read them, uh, it just touches on the surface and fails to grasp the meat of what McGregor said. You believe in people, you also give them clear goals and objectives. You also give them ways that manage concretely whether they're meeting those goals and objectives. You also build in a feedback system so that their performance can increase and improve, as well as you tap into where they want to go and what they want to be. So I think you, you said something earlier, you know, how, how do I get to, how do I help uh, people believe, how do I believe in people? Uh, and I think the flip side of that is a leader isn't going to believe in others any more than he or she believes in themselves. Uh, what I found is that the worst leaders are the ones that are insecure about their own abilities and not confident in, in what they're trying, attempting to achieve or that they even can achieve it. Uh, those leaders that are comfortable in their own skin, well, they're fun to hang out with. They also have high standards. And man, you just want to meet them, right? You want to meet the standard because yeah. this person's so much fun to hang out with. And I include both men and women in that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've seen um, insecurity just kill people's leadership, you know, and make them make horrible decisions. And um, we, you know, you had another client, Mark Wilson, that's a friend of mine. And he, um, you know, he and I would talk about that as we were, we were involved in the same org for a number of years of how um, everyone has some insecurity, but anytime you make a decision because of that insecurity that feeds in that insecurity, it's, almost 100% of the time, the wrong decision. You can mm. almost go, what is my insecurity wanting me to do? Let me yeah. do the opposite, and that's probably the good leadership decision, you know? Yeah, yeah. So. I think that, I mean, that calls, out, that calls out a couple of things. What do you do as a leader when you have, you feel that insecurity? Uh, you know, if, if you're a leader and you don't have mentors, uh, you're really missing a, a powerful dynamic uh, I have mentors that I can go to and say, I don't feel at all capable here. I don't feel, you know, I'm just, I'm missing it here somehow. And to get that kind of feedback and have people ask the kinds of challenging questions that get at the core issues, that really helps as a leader. Uh, yeah. I would, 
I would never, Janice and I concluded uh, that in leadership roles that I would ever take, two things would always happen. I would always have a team of people, and I would always have mentors, and in some cases, therapists who just walked with me through that. It just, yeah. you know, as a, as a necessity of surviving yeah. for the challenges of leading. Yeah. And yeah, they, you know, so many times they've been down the road before, they've seen something, and sometimes my wife was visiting her counselor because she's a counselor for kids, and so she has a counselor. And she was telling, I'm back in the States caring for my father-in-law who's getting over COVID. And she just said, would you have any words for my husband in this situation? So it wasn't even me directly, but he just said to her, tell Buddy to focus on meaning in his life. So yesterday mm -hmm. I was visiting him in the ICU and I'm just like, where was your favorite place to live? What, you know, what did you love about that place? What were, you know, I've asked him about just all kinds of questions about what were his regrets in life and um, and it's been really fun. I'm hearing stories that no one in the family has heard about, or maybe his sisters knew from 80 years ago, but we didn't know at our generation. And, and that was just one word, you know, from a counselor that I got secondhand, but those little things help us, um, so much when, yeah, when people have been down the road before, um, just is hugely helpful. Oh, yeah. And when you talk to you talk to leaders about meaning or you talk to them about purpose, uh, I've I've watched leaders, you know, just kind of stop dead in their tracks when I ask the question about what their purpose is. I get all kinds of feedback about what their tasks are uh, and what their job is. But but when I ask them what their purpose is, that's a whole different uh, level of question. Uh, yeah. And when they discover their purpose and can define it, I see them take off. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just gets exciting to hang around them then. Uh, and again, those are the leaders that are fun to hang out with are the ones who have a sense of purpose. They give others a sense of purpose and help others discover their purpose. Uh, they're just, uh, they're the ones that have that ability to set others at ease, uh, even in conflict. Uh, can ask pointed questions that help people get to core issues and uh, can offer, offer the kind of feedback, usually in a sentence, a question or a word that, that really addresses the core of whatever conflict is happening. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fun to watch them in action. Yeah. It's not always fun to be the subject of their action. Right. <clears throat> it is fun in the long run. Uh, yes. But yeah, sometimes the immediate, maybe not so much. So you talked about servanthood as, you know, one of the core characteristics of a good leader. What do you feel like are some of the other, you know, kind of bedrock, unchanging characteristics of great leaders? Uh, I think the ability to engender trust uh, in people. Uh, if, you, if you define trust as a, in its components of benevolence, competence, and integrity, uh, all three of those characteristics are, any great leader has those characteristics, right? They, the integrity, they do what they say they're going to do. They're, they're not a living contradiction of their own words. Uh, they have a true care for people uh, and compassion for people. And they are constant learners. 
they're increasing their skill level and their capacity uh, to deal with an enlarging scope uh, all the time. Uh, most of the great leaders I have known personally, for example, are voracious leaders. And not only do they read, they engage the concepts. Uh, and uh, I remember one of my early mentors was a leader of a denominational body here in the U United States. The man, the man must have read 24 to 30 books a year. Uh, but not just read. He ingested them. And then he came back with a critical eye at the organization and with those that worked around him. I, I would have breakfast with him once a week when I was working at, our, at the denominational headquarters he was leading. And uh, at breakfast, he would raise a concept he'd read about and talk about it uh, in, in, in critical terms, not critical like negative, but critical in how does this apply. And then he'd start asking me questions of what I was going to do with it. Uh, man, you want to talk about challenging. Uh, he made me think at a deeper level. Uh, yeah. But I find that uh, learning commitment in every great leader, that benevolence, that love for people in every great leader, that integrity in every great leader, uh, and, and that definite working on, on skill sets and strategies. I think, I think with that, the, the kind of the parallel to that is they're always open to feedback. Uh, when, when I have asked a leader, uh, this kind of leader, a question or made an observation, say, you did this, and so I'm wondering how that fits into what you said. And when that identifies a gap in them, they don't get defensive. They go, wow, uh, you just gave me a blind spot check. Uh, thank you. Uh, let me think about this for a minute. Yeah. Well, that's... And when you talk to a toxic leader, if you bring up a gap, they just double down in defense of the gap. Uh, you know, it's not a very pleasant uh, experience then because you face their wrath of having been exposed afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I've experienced both of those uh, types of leaders in my days. And yeah, it, you're, it's drawing when, when a leader has the humility to go, okay. Yeah, let me let me change that. Let me think about it or or even to come back and say, yeah, I thought about it, but here's something you didn't know or whatever, you know, like just yeah. that they're they're willing to have a conversation around it. They're not squashing you or trying to brush it aside or whatever. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, all of which points. Yeah, all of that. Then if I took what we just talked about and summarized it. One of the things great leaders do is develop other leaders. Yeah. Uh, and Bobby Clinton, who is one of my professors at Fuller when I was there and was a mentor to me as well, I was fond of saying the greatest work a leader ever does is develop other leaders. And when you think about that in terms of what organizations, what organizations' uh, situations are critical uh, in terms of what they face, not only is the ability to adapt to a changing market critical, but succession planning becomes critical. And uh, I've worked with enough organizations that, you know, it dawned on them that they needed to do succession plan, and it usually dawns on them when they're in the middle of a succession. Yeah. Uh, that's not the time to think about a succession plan. Uh, that they needed to develop leaders, like, yes, before you got here, that should have been happening. But now let's, let's talk about how to get from here to there. Yeah. Uh, so... You know, if I'm leading an organization, I'm automatically 
looking at how I develop leaders to take that organization further. And I think here, uh, humility comes into play as well as a leadership characteristic. I remember my first congregation, I was really excited about a young engineer who'd, who'd come into the congregation as the, the congregation was growing. And uh, I was praying for him one day. And I got a question from, from God, from the Holy Spirit, that hit my brain. And it was, will you pray for him when his capacity for leadership exceeds your own? Hmm. I went, what? Uh, you know, I just, what? Uh, because at, at that point in my young uh, stupidity, I had assumed that growing capacity would always be me and that everybody, of course, would want to follow me as the leader. I hadn't stopped to think that growing capacity meant I was growing capacity in others who would, in turn, excel beyond me. Yeah. And, in fact, that's what happened with this young guy. Uh, he just took off and became a leader that uh, just has excelled beyond anything I've done. Uh, but that's leadership. Yeah. Right? That's, that's the goal if we're being leaders. If it's all about us, though, that's not the goal. And the first thing I, I would do is squash that guy because he's going to supplant me down the road. Yeah. So even if I try to squash him, however, he'll still supplant me. Yeah. There's the reality of good leadership. Yeah. Um, you know, this last year has been a crazy one for change, you know, crazy times. What are some ways that you think great leaders need to change with the times? Uh, I think I'm, I'm going to give you a process, right? Because how leaders need to change is going to be dependent on so many variables. It's their context, their industry. I think if there's, if there's a principle that guides the answer to that question, it is leaders need the, they need the capacity for reflection uh, and reflection in their own experience. Uh, and I don't mean the typical reflection, like, you know, how did that work? Was it was a success? Was it a failure? But a deeper reflection. Uh, what's not working consistently in how I approach my task? Uh, what are my beliefs uh, behind that? Uh, I'm taking a consistent approach, then I must be believing something about that approach. Uh, and now I'm going to critique that belief. Uh, is, is, are those assumptions valid or invalid? A leader who has that capacity uh, can lead others through an adaptive process that help them face the unknown. And, and the hard part about facing change is that people become unnerved by the unknown. Uh, the unknown could be way better than the present. But it's always, you know, the problems that I know are, are more comforting than the problems that I don't know. Uh, the, the behavior that I know, as dysfunctional as it is, is just a little more comforting than the behavior that I don't know and don't practice yet. So I think the way leaders need to change if they're going to survive in the kind of adaptive environment that we're in is one, to have that process going on within themselves, and then two, uh, is to be able to lead others through that process. Uh, and, and, you know, it's kind of like saying, 
Uh, I'm stepping onto a boat from a dock, and there is this very awkward time where I'm not fully in the boat, and I'm not solidly on the dock. But in that transition, I've got to be in both. And holding that tension uh, and, and knowing when to finally let go of the dock and be committed to the boat, let go of the former and be committed to the change, that's a tough tension to be in. Uh, and, and many are the times that, in that analogy, I've gone for a swim uh, yeah. because I didn't know how to hold the tension, uh, right? And so I think in any kind of adaptive and wildly changing situation, it's that ability to hold the tension and to let it boil and cook whatever needs to come out is critical, critical, critical component of good leadership today. Yeah, that's great advice. Are there any recommendations that you would give to aspiring Christian business leaders? Yeah, I, I find a mentor. Uh, it's going to be my first advice. Who can challenge your behavior and your stated beliefs? And specifically, the gap between them. Uh, have somebody that you trust that you can talk honestly about and give them permission to ask you probing questions that reveal those gaps. Yeah. Uh, all of us, as thoroughly committed as we are to following Jesus, are going to have gaps, behavioral gaps. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that assumes that I don't also have to talk about silos, right? Uh, because a deeper problem is if I'm a committed believer, but that never translates over into who I am on Monday morning. Uh, so that committed believer has to impact something internally that also transforms Monday morning. Uh, that committed believer also has to impact how I do business. And what does that look like? And, and where does that go? And so having a mentor that can ask those kind of questions or make observations is, is really keen. Uh, I, think, I think the other thing I would say is, uh, and, and I, I don't want this to sound cutesy, but while you're striving for success, uh, I would think more deeply about significance. Uh, success is an outcome. Uh, it's an outcome of something deeper. And so I want people to be successful, but I want them to be successful in a way that's also significant. And for me, I, I think the contrast, Janice and I were coming back from a vacation trip to Canada one year, and we stopped off in, uh, just over the line in the U.S. We were at a motel before we went into Seattle to catch our plane back to Southern Cal. And, uh, we were going to go to dinner, so Janice was getting ready because I get ready faster. I don't know. You know. I think that's a common pattern. And so I said, hey, I'm going to go down to the bar. Uh, I know some other business people down there. I'm going to go down and get to know them. And so when you're ready, just come on down and we'll go to dinner. So I head down to the bar, and there's this guy that is uh, very interesting. He's from New York. He's an M&A, a merger and acquisition guy. Uh, so his job for his corporation is go out, look at companies that they wanted to buy, buy them, and uh, you know they were just raking profit. And so he told me about the process, and he had just been out on the West Coast looking at a couple of companies, and they were going to go buy a couple of companies to add to their portfolio. And so I asked him, I said, you know, I'm a leadership guy. So I said, well, how do you guys work the culture? You know, how, do you, how do you absorb that company into your corporate culture? 
He goes, well, no, no, that's not even what we do. I said, well, tell me more. What do you mean it's not what we do? He said, look, we buy companies to take their profit. We don't care what happens to them after that. If they're profitable, we buy them, we pull what we need to out of them, and we sell them again. And I thought, oh. To myself, I thought, oh, you're not a leader. You're a barbarian, yeah. right? You're just out pillaging. Yeah. Uh, this is not business. Yeah. Uh, that makes money, right? They wouldn't do it if it didn't make money, but that's all they're doing is making yeah. money. Uh, someday, because I'm praying for this guy still, this has been years ago, someday he will wake up and realize he's got a lot of money and that's all he's got. Yeah. Uh, and when he hits that point, uh, there will not only be uh, you know, an attempt to cover the pain through any kind of self-medication, but there could also be suicidal thoughts. I've seen guys go through this that, oh yeah, they, they got it, but now what? Uh, and the worst kind of guy that I've seen, or I haven't seen that many women in this role, they tend to approach leadership differently, but the worst kind of guy is the guy that just calluses himself and says, I, I'm just going to add more stuff. Yeah. Uh, and to hell with the cost on anybody else. If they were as smart as me, they'd be as rich as me. Yeah. Uh, which I challenge the proposition of that statement. That's interesting that you use the word barbarian. I think the first, like one of the first big M&A deals in America was in the 80s with Nabisco. And the book about it is called Barbarians at the Gates and or at the gate. And so it's kind of funny that you use that term. But that, yeah, a bad, a bad M&A deal. Yeah, it's not it doesn't care about culture, just focused on profits, just like a bad, you know, and that's why more and more. I mean, the whole BAM world that I'm a part of business's mission they talk about a quadruple bottom line. You're not just you're not just thinking profits. You know, you're you're actively thinking about your culture. You're thinking about the environment. You're thinking about the spiritual or social impact of your business as well. And more and more, that is where the world is going. You know, we're starting to see that where um, people want to invest in things. And they're actually I was. Um, I had a podcast guest who's a financial advisor and he was saying people are now, they would actually rather not just maximize profits and maybe try to get 14% return on investment. They'd rather take eight or 10 if they know they're making the world a better place mm -hmm. and just get 14% for themselves. And the reality is we, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be calloused about people that are suffering, but we are, we're wealthy in America today. You know, you've traveled around the world, you've seen other people, I'm looking at my daughter's like 13 year old Volkswagen Jetta that she gets to drive and it's leather seats. And, and she's like, this isn't that nice. And I'm thinking, do you know what your mom and I drove in college when we finally got cars, our junior and senior year, <laughs> yeah. it's like, we, we are so wealthy. If we can think about it at a, at a worldwide global scale. And, um, and we know now like scientifically, sociologically that our lives are far better if we're thinking about things besides just money. It's almost, you know, it's still hard when we get in, in those decision-making um, processes at times, but yeah, what a, what oh, a yeah. you know, well, and I think as Christian leaders, especially, hopefully we are striving to be those kind of leaders, you know? 
I think I think it helps sometimes. I've talked with a lot of business leaders over the years, and when we talk about uh, the kinds of concepts we're talking about, uh, you know, Ray, that's nice, but you know, I got P and L responsibility. Uh, we've got to see profit come to this thing. Well, yes, I understand that. I've also had P and L responsibility of a 14 million monthly uh, revenue. Uh, so I understand that pressure, but the move in business in the United States today that's been so controversial yet so helpful is the difference between stockholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism. And what's, what's now begun to be understood is that stockholder capitalism only goes so far uh, in really producing what you want to produce in terms of profit and benefit to society. Stakeholder capitalism, which has that larger view, is so much more uh, not only profitable, but reproducible. And uh, you, know, you don't have the problems you have in stockholder capitalism with employee disengagement and theft and other things that you have to, you actually have to budget for in certain industries. You know, how much are we gonna lose this year to our employees? We're not only working on how to stop it, but we're working on we have to budget for that loss. What's that going to look like? Uh, that's, that's just a sad commentary at yeah. so many levels. Yeah. Well, and that kind of leads into my next question of, because um, that requires some management. How do you um, kind of distinguish between, you know, management and leadership in an organization or business? Sure. Uh, we can distinguish the activity between the two. Uh, one of my pet peeves, though, is when people make this distinction hard and fast, as though management were evil and leadership were good. I've read enough articles on this. I just go, no, 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 you, you're a theorist. You haven't actually had to lead people, manage people in an organization, if you're thinking this way. Management basically is, is marshalling the resources at your disposal toward the goal of the company. So those resources, you know, we talk about budget, we talk about people, we talk about materials. Uh, you're planning, you're, you're putting together ways that that can create an outcome, a product, that the, the price of which is less than the cost of putting it together. So a manager has a huge task. A manager still has to be inspirational in things that we typically assign to leadership, right? So I say you can't differentiate them absolutely. But, but in basic terms, management is marshalling resources and then putting in the controls so that you can actually get to an outcome. Leadership is envisioning that outcome and then marshalling the talent that's needed to get there. And so if I, if I look at two basic functions, one is envisioning a future marshalling talent, the other is envisioning the task or defining the task and marshalling the resources to achieve it, those have to work. Uh, together. Uh, when you put it into those terms, then you remove the tension between the two functions and you see the synergistic relationship that really is uh, the relationship between management and leadership. Yeah. So, there, you know, we talked about bad leaders and there's a lot of um, press and, and different things on bad leaders. What, what would you say are some characteristics of bad managers? Uh, I think when you're talking about bad managers, uh, you know, so absorbed in the task uh, that they reduce P 
people to human resources. Uh, I hate the term human resources. Uh, it it kind of reminds me back in the 70s, early 70s, when Vietnam was still going on and all of us young men had to go register for the draft. You know, I have never experienced such an impersonal uh, transaction in all my life as registering for the draft here in the United States. And uh, I'm just the obnoxious kind of person to try to get, break through that. I thought, if I'm, if I'm potentially going to go die for my country, I at least want people to know who I am. Yeah. I don't want to just be a number that gets sent over and added to the number of losses we had today in Vietnam. Uh, managers, bad managers, are like that. They also are drivers. Uh, no, there's human interaction is minimalistic to them. Uh, I have to relate to you because you're my employee, but I'm going to relate to you on what I want you to do today, and you, you, you know, darn well, pretty good at better get it done. Uh, micromanaging. Uh, now, by micromanaging, I don't mean having proper controls over the tasks that your people are doing, right? So, for example, I manage the sales team, and we put guardrails in to our whole sales process so that I, couldn't, I didn't have to worry about people running off the reservation, as it were, uh, to, in what they were trying to do with customers. We had protections in for them. Those are controls. They're called controls. But within those controls, we also gave them the flexibility to make decisions, but we gave them the tools to make those decisions. Uh, if they wanted to give a discount, they saw the financials uh, for our team. Uh, they could calculate, was it going to be profitable for their region to do that? How would it impact the entire team if they did that? Uh, and so you empower them with information to do that. Uh, micromanaging goes way beyond just saying, I, I want you to do the task my way. The worst thing about micromanagers is they try to micromanage everything. Uh, you know, you spent... You spent two minutes longer than the average in the restroom today. I actually heard a manager say that once. And I thought, who's monitoring restroom time? <laughs> uh, I had another manager who I was, I was shadowing him, and he was, he was boasting about how great a manager he was. And so he called a meeting, took everybody away from their task, called a meeting to talk about how many squares of toilet paper to use. Oh my and that they their toilet paper costs had gone up, yeah. and that, and you could see you could see in the eyes of the employees. Oh, this is what we're going to talk about. Yeah, and I thought they're going to be missing roles. I mean, it's just yeah. ridiculous. Uh, there was a, a consultant working for a shoe manufacturer of the name of which you, everybody would know. They were losing money. Uh, their packaging going out. They had mismatched shoes, they had missed sizes, they had two right shoes, or they had a, a 10 right sh left shoe and an eight right shoe, and they were all going into these boxes. They couldn't figure out where their process was breaking down. And so this consultant was walking through their factory, walking down the line. He decided to watch the individuals packaging the boxes. And uh, as he was watching, he saw a guy who was deliberately mismatching shoes. And he watched, I thought maybe it was a mistake, but he watched him for a few more minutes. No, this was a deliberate attempt uh, to do this. So he walked over to the guy and said, hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, I've watched you for a while, and you know I'm, I'm consulting with the management here. Uh, you appear to be deliberately mismatching shoes. With, am I mistaken in that? He goes, no. 
No, you're not mistaken. That's exactly what I'm doing. Well, may I ask why? Yeah, because my manager's an idiot. He's a jerk. And they told some story about some micromanaging episode. The employee's way to get him back was to sabotage the product going out. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of approach to management is extremely self-defeating. Yeah. Uh, and so you get, you get managers then who work in anger. Uh, I call them yellers. I uh, worked next to a manager in one company I was in who called in. He was actually a VP, but managing his you know, managers on the floor, he called in the head, one of the head guys over the departments, one of the chief managers of the department, every week, Tuesdays at 9.30, he would call him in and chew him out so loud you could hear him through the entire company. Yeah. Right? And my office is right next door, so I'm, I got front seat view in this. Every week. And so I listened to that for about six weeks. And one day after he got done yelling at uh, Clayton, I walked into his office, closed the door. I had a door between our office. I walked in, closed that door, closed his door to the hallway and said, hey, could I ask you a question or make an observation? He goes, sure. I said, you need to put up or shut up. He said, what? He said, you call Clayton in here every week and chew him out so loud the entire floor can hear you. Uh, nobody can hear me. I said, hmm. I said, pull up. We had production software that, that monitored what was going on. I said, pull up your production software for last Tuesday, 9.30. Uh, clock it from 9 to 10.30. What do you see? He said, wow, we have a dip. I said, yeah. Okay, go the week before. Clock the same time. He said, wow, we have another dip. I said, go the week before. Wow, we have another dip. He goes, what is going on? I said, here's what's going on. That's when you have Clayton in here and you're screaming at him. And everybody on the floor stops out of fear. Whoa. I said, and then you go out and buy ice cream for everybody. I said, you're like an abusive dad. First you beat him up, then you try to buy him ice cream. I said, it's not working. Uh, it was a really tense, then tender conversation that. Yeah. But typical of a bad manager, right? Take out my frustration on everybody else. Uh, and then the worst thing a manager can do is not take responsibility. Uh, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have pay cuts. If you're a manager and you're in a meeting with a senior team and you're going to have to go back and announce pay cuts, how do you announce that? Uh, well, here's how you announce it. Hey, it's not me. Because it was up to me, we'd all keep our wage. But you know, upstairs says there's going to be a pay cut. Oh, really? Is that all the business savvy that you have? If there's a pay cut, there's a reason. Yeah. And it's a difficult decision, unless it was just for profit. It's a difficult decision. Why don't you go back and talk about your contribution to the discussion and how the consequences of not doing this could be devastating yeah. uh, and how while it's a hard decision, you were part of that decision. And talk about how it impacts you, unless, like one company I was in, wanted to cut the pay for our employees, but wanted to give all the executive team a raise. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I, and I, I was in that meeting. I said, uh, do you hear yourselves talking? 
you want me to go back and talk to the team about how we can't afford to give them raises, and in some cases, we're cutting their pay, while I also say, and because I'm so good, I get a pay raise. I said, if we don't leave the building one day with hatchets in our head, I'll be, sorry. I'll be surprised, right? Yeah. This is just a dumb thing. So all of these kinds of approaches, bad management, bad, bad, bad. Yeah. So what are some of the qualities that make a great manager? I think a great manager, a great manager, you get around a great manager, what you're going to see is they're going to call you to a purpose, right? Uh, they have the ability to tap into what motivates their employees and marry that with the needs of the company. And so, you know, you have these skills. This is where we're going as an organization. And, and that assumes that the organization can frame why they're in business as more than just their product, right? Why do they build the product that they build? Uh, I saw the other day, there's, uh, on television recently, there's Bombas socks, right? These guys make socks. Like, woohoo, they make socks. Uh, but their whole commercial is, here's these two socks. Here's the ones you buy, and here's the ones we give away. And we just gave away 30 million pairs of socks to the homeless. And that's why we make these socks, so that we can give these socks away. Well, suddenly now I've got a purpose. If I work for Bombas, I'm not just making socks. I'm helping answer a critical need for the homeless. And if, in case your viewers haven't been awake, homelessness in the United States is hitting just this horrible level, right? It doesn't matter where you go, there are tent cities popping up. We're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, but if I'm working for Bombas, I'm, I'm also working part of the solution. So there's a free commercial for Bombas. Yeah. But so a manager, a manager can do that. They have that ability. Secondly, they're giving people clear instructions, clear tasks, right, that are measurable. And that measurement isn't just whether they pass or fail. The measurement also serves to be developmental. And so uh, with my sales team, we had a clear criteria uh, and goals, action goals, and ways to get there. And when we talk about whether they were hitting those goals or not, it wasn't just a, you need to do this or get out, uh, which that would be bad management. It is, let's talk about where you're struggling to get there. Is it a skill set? Is, is it a belief? Is it a uh, challenge internally, externally? Let's talk about what that is. And now suddenly we're not just talking about how to sell more product, but we're talking about how to develop as an individual. And uh, in developing as an individual, uh, you see real change in people. And in fact, they become better employees. I think it, if you're going to be a good manager, you have this capacity to create an environment of hope rather than cynicism. Yeah. Uh, and this is, this is probably one of the most important things a manager can do. It's, it's in, this, in this ability to create hope, you actually create an environment that you'll see an increase in productivity that some researchers say 20, 20 to 30% increase just by giving people hope rather than cynicism. Wow. And this becomes particularly important when a company is facing challenging times. You know, how do, how do organizations survive challenging times? It's because they have a confidence that they'll get through it 
even though, and then here's the other thing a manager does, even though they see how challenging the time is, they, they, managers manage facts, they don't manage emotions, right? And so what are the facts of my situation? And the facts may be dire. Well, okay, I will make decisions based on those facts, but everybody will know those facts. And what we won't do is manage out of emotion, right? Manage out of fear, manage out of anger, manage out of any kind of emotion. Uh, it's just not going to be productive. But if I can bring people hope, help them see reality in its raw form, and know the challenge that's in front of us, I can inspire them to overcome that. Yeah. Or, or to give it the best shot, and if we can't do it, nobody can. Yeah. Right? So we can all walk away going, we did our best. Yeah. Yeah. Great thoughts. Um, yeah. Really good stuff. In fact, partway through, I went to look for my pen and realized I emptied all my pockets upstairs in my desk <laughs> in preparation. But then I immediately thought, wait, I get, I listen to this again. So I, <laughs> yeah. I can listen with a pen the next time that yeah. I go through. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, Ray. Really um, appreciated your thoughts on leadership and management and the difference, how to be great at both. And I do just want to encourage you um, to pick up one or both of Ray's books. Um, his book on leadership, Change the Paradigm, How to Lead Like Jesus in Today's World. And his book on management, Lift, Five Practices Great Managers Do Consistently. And um, yeah, each of those is great. I've read them both. And um, yeah, thanks so much, Ray, for um, being on our podcast today. Thanks for your investment in me over the years and helping me to be a better leader and better manager. And I know, I mean, I, I can look at individuals whose lives are better because you've been in my life. So thanks so much uh, for that. Thank you, buddy. And uh, as always, I appreciate our friendship. You challenge me as well, which is always the fun part of these conversations. BAM School, facilitating a global self-funding disciple-making movement through business. Thanks for tuning in to the BAM School Podcast. Find show notes, free courses, resources, and more at forbam.com.